Okay, pre-show. So, like, I mean, pre-show stuff, guys. Like, the real topic here that we have to talk about is, is like, Star Wars. Of course. And that trailer. Man. Okay, well, so, here I go. Did you guys get the shivers? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I didn't get the shivers like The Force Awakens because, realistically, The Force Awakens was... When the very first teaser trailer, when it came out, and the Millennium Falcon kind of ripped through the sand dune there right, you know, that was awesome. in the graveyard, that was like, that had to be single-handedly like the greatest thing I've ever seen on TV. Like, I almost cried. Yeah. I'm not even kidding. And it was a really long time but, coming too. So that's- Oh, so good. That's what made it so, so like, special, it, I think. Right. So the, these trailers are like having to live up to that one, which is impossible. But realistically, that was a pretty sweet trailer a week ago. It was it a week ago? Well, a few days ago. I don't know if it's been a week yet. As we're recording now, I don't think it's a week yet. Yeah, it was awesome. Monday night. I'm excited. And the thing is, this movie is probably going to be better than Force Awakens because Force Awakens had to sort of make amends for all the years that have passed without a Star Wars movie. Right. Like it had to reconnect with that feeling. I feel this one, this next one can stand on its own. And that's going to be big. I'm, I'm really curious to oh. see in which direction they take it. Because uh, it has a lot of potential. It can get really dark if they choose to go that way. Or it can be, you know, the usual lighthearted stuff. How cool would it be if Ray decided to become, like, turn to the dark side? Holy crap, that would be awesome. Like, not because of any, like, weird... She would be, like, unstoppable. Pretty badass. Oh, I'll be... Like, I mean, I don't want to see that happen, but I mean, it would be amazing to see. But it would be, it would be heartbreaking. Yeah. Because everyone yeah, fell in love right. with Ray in the first movie. Yeah. She was almost like too good, right? Like almost too good. Yeah. That, that, that's that gotta be on purpose. Like they, I'm pretty sure they have some sort of twist planned for her. And what can, what can it be if not, you know, the dark side? Right. So I, I, I'm afraid we're, we are going to see something like that. I, I just hope that the music ends up being good for Marius so that at the very least he's a little bit entertained somehow. <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. I mean, I, I was very entertained by The Force Awakens. I did enjoy the film. Um, but this trailer for me was way less, um, uh, I don't know, like I, I was with you on the, the Force Awakens trailer and even... Um, yeah, like I don't know. For some reason, this this particular one, I was like, okay, it looks like a it looks like a normal trailer. It didn't really have that extra little bit of Star Wars punch to it, right. um, and that was a little unfortunate. But I do I do agree with Oliver that this this film, the way that they've set it up, um, it's actually a bit of a make or break kind of thing because you know they they have set the stage very safely. So they can kind of do whatever they want with this film. And I do hope that they're brave. I do hope that they push some boundaries because otherwise it's going to feel stale and it's going to feel like they're not really doing anything with the franchise. And that would be sad, really, because there's there's just so much. It's such a beloved franchise. It's so important to the industry. Like, I, I would like to see them challenge us um, and, and, you know, have the new generation of Star Wars be an independent, forceful thing that has the same kind of impact that its predecessors did. They're, they're probably already counting the cash. Oh yeah, that that part I'm not concerned about. I think they're fine financially. Rolling in it, just money for days. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna break the bag either way. I mean, they could they could make the worst movie ever, and they people would still go. <laughs> oh, I'm going three times. Do we know how long it took for the tickets to sell out? Are they sold out? I don't even know that. Oh, are they? But they probably are. But. I have no idea. I hope not, because I haven't bought mine yet. I just assumed that they would be, because it's more than four seconds after they went up for sale. <laughs> uh, but I think 
in general, movie going is down. That's true too. Like for all movies, like the industry is in a downswing. I think. Yeah. They keep making more money, but that's because they keep raising prices. Yeah. But the number of people that go to the movies, I think, it's getting lower and lower every year, because there's more competition. Right? You have Netflix, you have HBO, you have all sorts of excellent content on offer that you can watch at home. And it's impossible to watch every movie. Like you always have movies that are getting released on Blu-ray or, or that are get, getting made available on streaming that you somehow missed at the theater. So there's always new stuff coming. It's not like, man, I don't have anything to watch on Netflix and I have to wait four months until this movie that I want to go to the theater to see is released. You know. Totally. And it's not just that, like now the screens that we've got in our living rooms are typically better than any sort of projection technology that we would get in the theater. So yes, of course, totally going to see a film and experiencing Atmos sound and, you know, the gigantic wall to wall screen, that's an experience. But if you've got a 4K HDR TV at home, that's a pretty great way to watch any sort of movie, right? And if you've got your viewing distances right, and right. you've got a decent sound system, that's pretty cinematic. I would way rather watch a movie that way. The real question, guys, will be is if is Star Wars Episode Eight going to be released in 4K? So like Disney did not have any like 4K movies and their first one came out, which was Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Right. But that's a Marvel movie, so it doesn't really count. <laughs> I didn't like it that much either. It was entertaining, but it was one of their poorer ones. No, it's, it's a great movie, but I, I mean, belonging to the Marvel franchise, it's, it's sort of like a different. Yeah. I mean, it's owned by Disney, but it's not really Disney. You know, they have the money, they, they, they get to keep the money, but creatively they operate as, an, as a separate entity, I think. So do you think they're going to shoot it in 4K? Or obviously they shot it in 4K. Do you think that they will release it in 4K? Oh, they. I think they shoot it in like 8K or something like that. These, right. I right, don't know the name sure. of the cameras, but- 32K. Yeah, those, those are insane. <laughs> but yeah, I mean- Because Rogue One isn't in 4K, right? Not yet, but it's going to get released in 4K for sure. I, yeah, right. They're going to launch it 10 years from now. <laughs> no, you know what? That new distribution system that they just unveiled, that, that um, I forget what it's called, but like Movies Anywhere or whatever it was, the one that's supposed to unify your, your digital film stuff and it's Disney and I don't know who else. I imagine that that's where they're going to make all of their 4K releases available and they'll do it exclusively there, yeah. which makes sense. I mean, they're- Oh, that'll be awesome. It, it sucks in, in a way because this is kind of the- um, is this history repeating itself, right? Like suddenly we're going to have every network, every, you know, big name have its own streaming service and its own crap. And suddenly we're back in the, yeah. um, but setting that aside, at least for Disney, I, I assume that this is where they're going to make 4k available. Um, it's unfortunate because I really don't want to have to be splintering my, you know, entertainment spending across a whole bunch of different subscriptions, each of which is basically for one thing, you know, like I'll subscribe to the Disney one for Star Wars films. It's inevitable. I'll subscribe to the, like, it just, I don't, that's not a future that I want to live in, but unfortunately it looks I like. I think they'll cross license. I don't think we're going to live in a world where every franchise is siloed into their own service. I think cross licensing is very, very profitable for all of them and they're going to keep doing it because right now all of the Disney movies are on Netflix, even The Force Awakens. Yeah, but it's not just it's not just about availability. It's it's about getting the best experience, right? So yes, it's available, but is it available in 4K? Well, no. And so, you know, that's that's where things get a little tangled. I don't know. I think I think it'll sort itself out. They've, they'll figure out how much money people are willing to pay and they'll adjust to that number. It's gonna get. It's gonna be expensive, sure, but it. It's not gonna be crazy expensive because people will not go for it. I hope so. 
So speaking of how much money people are willing to pay, <laughs> good segue. I was yeah. thinking about this, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, guys, we haven't been on the air in a long yeah. time. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. That's true. Like, like almost like embarrassingly long. Candid, the weekly podcast. Well, well it's going to be weekly because we have a, an episode in the tank from like right. a month ago, but isn't it two in the tank? Yeah. Counting this one. So this one and last one are <laughs> going are to funny. be released probably a week apart, but it's been... <laughs> we should just do it back to back, yeah. same day. Yeah. Netflix style. That's true. That's true. Binge <laughs> on Candid. <laughs> um, so like we got to go over a month of craziness in or, like in less than, well, now that we've ticked, we've kind of flirted away like 88 and a half minutes of our recording so we're down to 50 minutes to get through a month of stuff yeah. guys this is going to be impossible so uh yeah here we go iphones we're a little late to the party yeah let's pick an easy topic to start <laughs> let's let's ignore everything else that that apple announced for now um and just yeah iphones so this is uh, they like this whole announcement happened i think the day before i left or something like that which was great for me by the way i highly recommend it because it means i got to skip the vast majority of the initial crappy reporting and i just got Lucky to you. check in you know 3 weeks later and get the distilled wise opinions of you know, the folks who actually spent time and... Of me in Slack. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, there's two iPhones, three iPhones, I guess, if we count three. if we count yeah. the Plus as a separate thing, which is the first time that they've done things this way. There's, you know, a joint flagship situation going on where... It kind of posed a little bit of a tough, like, like purchasing problem. I don't think there is a joint flagship situation. I think the X, well, the 10, sorry. I, I'm going to keep saying X, man. 10, 10, 10, yeah. <laughs> I think that's clearly the flagship and they've marketed it as such. I suppose so. I'm I'm looking at it as a bit more of a concept car rather than necessarily the flagship, you know? Like it's Yeah, that's and true. I think that's going to depend on how much supply they're ma- they're managing to um to to create. Um you know, some people have speculated that this delay in release is so that they can bolster supply to the point where they can at least meet you know the initial wave of demand uh, which is reasonable because there's it's a whole new chassis it's a whole new set of parts so it can't be can't be easy there's something interesting going on here because the narrative that we've uh, that we read in the weeks prior to the event everybody on the apple blogosphere was saying that the whole point of this new iphone was so that so that apple could make a better iPhone by using components that they couldn't make in high volume. Uh, so that this would be, by design, supply constrained, you know, forever, basically, because that's the way it's supposed to be. Right. Uh, and they would price it higher so that demand for it would be naturally lower than for the other models. I don't think that's working very well because <laughs> everybody seems to be excited about the 10. Well, it's the new hotness. I think they're going to have plenty of demand and they're going to keep making them as fast as they possibly can. And I'm very curious to see if they release the the unit sales numbers next year, uh, if they separate it by device, because I think it's going to sell in way higher numbers than everyone's thinking initially. Yeah, I don't know. So the whole narrative of this is going to be a low volume product, I don't think that's going to hold up in, in reality. I think they're going to sell a ton of them. 
they're going to have like a bajillion pre-orders and shipping time is going to slip six months. That's going to be hilarious. And they're going to have the same problem that they had with the previous iPhone. They're, they're, going, they're still going to be constrained by what they can produce and how fast they can produce them, uh, not the technology itself. I think that's a flawed way of looking at it. I think that's always been the problem with Apple because they're they're producing things, well, Apple and Samsung, because they're they're producing things on such a gigantic scale that just by definition, they're going to be constrained because there's there's only so much capacity in the factories that exist. Like it's not it's it's literally a you know, so And it really breaks your breaks your mind when you stop to think about it. Like the number of iPhones Apple makes per minute. Yeah. Worldwide. Yeah. It's it's mind boggling. It's insane. And so, you know, having to bring an entire new model and you know, a, a whole new set of, of a whole new workflow basically for building these things, um, that's something that they're they're going to have to work on and ramp up slowly. It's not like they can suddenly switch over it's not like they stopped making the previous iPhones either, right? Like that's the other thing to keep in mind is this is not replacing the stuff that's happening in the chassis from the 6 and 6S. This is an entirely new thing on top of that while they still have to make the 8 and the 8 Plus in parallel also at a gigantic scale because that's the one that, you know, most people are probably going to end up with either for financial reasons or because they're tied into one of the upgrade programs and that's the more, you know, direct thing. But either way, we have two models and it's a first and I'm pretty sure I know which one I'm going to upgrade to. I'm sure which one Josh is going to upgrade to. Well, yeah, because he's <laughs> he's ahead of us. So, so guys, like the thing is that it's not that new of a phone with all these new things and amazing things because all that stuff ended up in the eight plus anyway. Yeah, yeah, most of it. Like the most eight plus is basically the ten, but a little bit bigger. And like, there's maybe a few differences, but I looked at that Venn diagram. I'm just not convinced it's worth an extra two, three, four hundred dollars and six months of waiting time. Not sure if it's worth it. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right, especially for you because you appreciate having the bigger screen for the keyboard and everything. Love it. Yeah. So, so that's my thought on it. And now, like, the biggest differences, admittedly, are in the photography front. Yeah, and and that's something that it's something that's getting like downplayed by pretty much everyone, but the camera upgrade is very significant. But but let's get real here though. There's no way, there's no way that anybody's gonna notice the difference between the eight plus and the, the the photos coming out of the eight plus and the photos coming out of the 10 or the X or whatever it's called. I just about guarantee you the general population will not be able to figure out which is which. Yeah, you're probably right. If they can't figure out the difference between an F1.8 lens and an F1.4 lens, there's no way they can figure the difference out between an F2.4 F2. and an F2.8. Right, yeah. but, but hold on, hold on, because the difference between 2.8, 2.4 plus the optical image stabilization in the telephoto lens means you have two stops better light gathering performance from one phone to the other, which may not translate into depth of field, but it will translate into less noise in darker situations, which is something that people can notice, and it is something that confers quite a big practical advantage. So... I think the bigger there's going to be a way bigger difference between the sh- slow shutter sync um, between the seven plus and the eight plus. I think there's going to be a bigger difference between in those features than there are between the ten and the eight plus in the optical image stabilization on that telephoto lens. Now, admittedly, like we're talking about physics here, and that lens has to be like I guarantee you, the tens photos will be better. Guarantee. Yeah. Uh, again, my. My thought is like four hundred dollars better and six months waiting better. No. And the problem, the Sorry. problem with the optical image stabilization and the slightly uh, wider aperture in the ten, 
uh, that translate to translates to better low light performance when you're shooting something that doesn't move. But if you're shooting a portrait, if you're shooting pictures of people, like like ninety percent of people are going to do, uh, that doesn't really help you that much because your shutter speed is going to be the limiting factor. You cannot have a slow shutter speed because because then people appear blurry, even if you have optical image stabilization in the lens. So I'm not convinced we're going to see a very significant difference between the 10 and the 8 plus on that front. I think in general shooting, it's not so visible. But again, when you're talking about lower light situations, you're going to be able to get away without using the flash for two extra stops. You're going to be able to maintain a faster shutter speed in lower light than the equivalent 8 plus. That's true. Just because of so, you know, it's it's not something that's going to necessarily apply to every single shooting scenario. And let's not forget that a lot of people are using only the wide angle camera. You know, that's the, the primary thing that they're using. It's it's they're pointing and shooting. And, you know, so that's just how they experience the cameras. But uh, I think that we're we're at a point where we can't really talk about iPhone photography and just discuss the casual market anymore, because I know that for me, at least I'm, you know, this is at the point where it's starting to, um, it's starting to replace things like an X100 in, in my day-to-day workflow, because the image output is at a level where it's harder and harder to justify having a dedicated smaller camera because the iPhone is that dedicated smaller camera. And that's why for me looking at this, I'm like, well, you know, an X100 costs more than a thousand dollars. Or I can upgrade my iPhone to the one with the best camera. I get, you know, a new phone, which is cool, and all the other tech. Plus, I get the best, you know, take everywhere, travel, lifestyle, whatever camera. And because I can sell my old one, I'm really only out a few hundred dollars. So it's, to me, the transaction makes a fair bit of sense. And then I actually look at it and I'm like, well, yes, I could save a couple hundred dollars by doing the eight plus instead. It's a familiar form factor and so on and so forth. But at the point where the difference is that small for the device that I use pretty much the most, you know, maybe my iPad, but it's, it's one of the most used devices in my life and certainly the most used camera. Um, that seems like, you know, it's, it seems like a no brainer to just pony up that extra couple hundred bucks and, and, enjoy it, especially because for me, at least I'm starting to look at the seven plus six, you know, eight, um, body design and it's starting to look old to me. And it's not like perfect. Perfect is the right word. It is perfect. Like that's, that's the problem. It's, there's not (laughs) much that they could change in that design, right? Like they've, they've refined it and it's excellent. And you know, the glass back on the eight is, is a really good enhancement. You know, wireless charging is a a surprising addition to the eight. You know, most people expected that would just be something that only the 10 got, but you know, the eight gets that as well. But you know, you look at the Samsung phones, you look at the pixel phones you look like all the other phones on the market are so much better looking um you know with the smaller bezels and you know just nicer design particularly the samsung ones and i just you know i I kind of feel like if i'm going to bother upgrading a phone i should upgrade to something that actually feels like it's from this year rather than four years ago i'm inclined to agree i'm not really that bothered by the familiarity of the old design I think I like it, and I like it fine. I, yeah, like I don't it's... have a problem with it. Like I'm not, I'm not eager to switch away from it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that if you're 
If you want to have the best possible camera in your pocket that money can buy in a smartphone, that's it. That's that's the one you have to go with. Uh, and I'm actually, but I'm actually more interested in discussing not so much the difference between the 8 Plus and the 10 when it comes to the cameras, but actually the generational leap between the 7 generation and the 8 and the 10. Right. Because this has been a pretty big leap in terms of cameras. And I don't see many people talking about it. It's like we take it for granted. But they keep improving the camera a lot every year. And and to me, it's it's th- this year, is it's been one of the biggest leaps we've seen. I'm hesitant to say ever, but but it's been a pretty big one. Yeah. Well, there's a significant boost in the front-facing camera, which, like, when we talk photography, we all kind of assume the back, you know, the rear-facing one, right? But I think the majority of the improvements, especially in the 10, were focused on that on the front-facing, yeah, correct? Yeah. Like the 10 is all about the front-facing camera, for sure. Uh, because you also have the facial recognition for the and emojis. I can't say that without cringing, sorry. <laughs> so, without a doubt, like, the improvements on the on the rear one are, are, are really good, but it almost feels like, especially this generation that the front facing one got the biggest attention, the most attention. Yeah. And to me, that was that, and it goes hand in hand with the other side of it, which is how quickly they've advanced the computational side of things. Because yeah, you know, when you, when you think about it, they've actually been using more or less the same, like it's the same sensor size. It's the same basic lens design, you know, that kind of stuff has been refined, but not really, they can't really meaningfully change that. There isn't room for it in this size device. So what they've had to lean on is the software and the fact that they've managed to make such like incredible improvements just purely based on software intelligence is unbelievable. Like this entire portrait lighting system is a work of, it's just delightful to to use and to, to see the kind of, um, brilliance that went into conceiving of this kind of feature like it it's using technology that's already there for a different purpose and making use of it to provide this really cool and useful um effect that isn't really like you can't really replicate it with a normal camera and that's actually you know it's again an example of an iphone pulling not necessarily ahead but away from standard cameras in terms of what it can do because something that you would typically need a camera plus a lighting setup to accomplish you can now replicate with a a pretty good degree of accuracy for a beta um, with your phone and and it's amazing like the way that they've done it is very very impressive and at least in my very limited testing uh, i spent only a couple days uh, over a weekend just playing with an eight plus um you know, in the right circumstances, it's very convincing. It's it's really good. <laughs> hey, I shot my first ever hero image for the suite setup with the iPhone last week. Um, and it's a good I'm one. I'm not going to lie. I, I feel like I cheated. I can't, like, I almost feel like dirty saying that I shot a hero image <laughs> with the iPhone. Yeah. But like, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. Like you look at the photo and you'd almost like, you might not be able to tell. There, The depth of field is all there and it's really... It's quite a quite an achievement that you can pull out this computer slab and it's as good as ninety five percent of the DSLRs out there. And especially for something like web use, like it, it's perfect. It's it's more than what it's yeah. You know, and even in print, that would do well. Yeah, and that that photo definitely passes a blind test. Like if you show it to people and don't tell them which camera shot that image, uh, I mean, some people would say iPhone just, but just because they would take a wild guess, but. There's nothing to to indicate that that's a that that picture was taken with a smartphone. It, it's and, and like we always say, shot on the iPhone, 
edited on the iPhone, shared on the iPhone, uploaded on the iPhone. So cool. So cool. Yeah, it's the only true one-stop device. Yeah. So uh, there was like a whole bunch of other stuff that happened over the week. Uh, or the week, the month. The month, yeah. Edit the that year. out, okay. The month. <laughs> yeah. Um, Marius, why don't you tell us about what happened over the last month? Uh, let's see what happened over the last month. Um, you got tan. I got tan. <laughs> you got tan, yeah. He's like nuclear. I did get tan. It's actually cool. I've never been this tanned before. So I'm I'm trying to like preserve it for as long as I can. It's uh, it's a good look. Uh, <laughs> How do you do that? I don't know. Uh, just sort of <laughs> hang out in the sun as much as I can. I'm not really sure there's a way. Wrap myself in paper or something and hope that it sticks. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I um, I was away um, and I got back. I think it's been a week now, hasn't it? Been a week, something like that. Um, maybe even longer, but. In any event, I was uh, I was away on a three and a little bit long week. Uh, sorry, three and a bit um, week long trip to Africa. Um, I was in East Africa, mainly Kenya and Tanzania, and uh, it was. I mean, it was the trip of a lifetime, which you know people say that, but I mean this this really was, and it's uh, it's still kind of remarkable just to think that I've now been. Mm-hmm. And I've I've actually done that trip because it's it's something that, you know, I've been wanting to do for a long time. And Shannon's been dreaming of sh- since she was, you know, a kid. And, you know, the fact that we managed to make it happen uh, is is amazing. And it was it was worth it. I mean, it was worth waiting for. It was worth um, all the planning and all the headache of, you know, what to bring and, and how to pack for it and all of that. It, right. it was it was worth it. It was Dude, unbelievable. Three and a half weeks. I honestly thought. There had to have been a lion that ate you. Yeah. Yeah, because we didn't hear from you in like a week. <laughs> and I didn't know it was three and a half weeks. I, I, I thought it was a two-week trip. And I'm like, okay, something's wrong. The guy has not, you know, slacked anybody in the last week. Like, is he is he gone? Like, what are we going to do? Has he died? No. Um, it, yeah. So because we were in fairly remote areas, we were um, camping out in the Masai Mara and in the Serengeti and... Uh, there's uh, no Wi-Fi, as you can imagine, in these places. What? So, uh, and <laughs> we also didn't bother to buy a local SIM card because, uh, I, for a trip like this, you kind of want to disconnect. Frankly, I mean, it was, you know. So, uh, yeah, we were we were totally incognito for the vast majority of it. Uh, we we checked in once in the middle um, when we circled back to Nairobi, um, but yeah, it was we were pretty much off the grid for the entire time, which was actually part of the appeal of the trip because I feel like it's easier to immerse yourself in a new culture and um, and kind of absorb all the stuff that's coming at you um, when you're not distracted by, you know, images of home and thoughts yeah. and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Work. If you're going to so. get lost in Africa, that's the way to do it, yeah. for sure. Yeah, so, yeah, um, it was it was an adventure. <laughs> Man, I, I still can't believe you've you've actually done it. I'm so jealous. Yeah, you should say it all over the way you put it on Slack. Mother what? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so like this is a photography podcast. So like maybe we should start there and then you can like extrapolate from there on like, you know, like real life things. Yeah, sure. But um so so it, so you went there. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say that it, it's hard to think of a more fascinating place for photography. Oh yeah. 
the landscape, the the wildlife, the the people. I mean, it's, all you got to do is like go on Flickr and and look at photos of the Serengeti and be like, whoa. Yeah, it's incredible. It's, it's a remarkable incredible. place. So how do you how do you even get started? What goes through your mind when you're getting ready to to pack and leave? Uh, the packing was hard. I mean, you guys you guys were um, unwilling helpers in my in my packing struggle just as I was trying to figure out what kind of equipment to take and uh, you know we we always give the advice that it's it's not the gear that matters it's the photographer but the reality is when you're faced with a trip like this you want to make sure that you have the equipment that can support whatever kind of shooting situation sure. you'll find yourself in and it's really hard to know what situations you'll find yourself in if you're going to somewhere that's so vastly different from what you're used to like this this trip you know i i'm not a stranger to travel but this was there was a lot of new stuff and and stuff that there was no way for me to plan for um so i my goal in terms of packing was really to just end up with a versatile kit something that was um lightweight something that wouldn't slow me down something that would let me um capture what i wanted in quality that i'd be satisfied with um, but without feeling like some crazy burden, right? Because on the one hand, yes, I'm a photographer going on a trip to a beautiful place. But on the other hand, I'm also a traveler wanting to experience that place and not be, uh, you know, dragging a bunch of gear behind me just because I want to get photos. Because a part of me, you know, had to internalize the fact that a lot of other people have been here and a lot of other people have taken better photos than I ever will. And it's not my job to, it's not like I'm the first person ever there, right? And I have to document everything because no one's seen it before. Like the the idea is what photos am I taking for me? You know, my particular take on the environments, the animals, whatever. And I think once I, uh, once I realized that, it, it became a lot easier because it, there was less pressure. Um, yeah, sure. It frees you from having to be constantly trying to capture everything and just enjoy the moment a little bit more yeah right? the, the experience yeah and you certainly don't want to get eaten by a lion just because your lens was so heavy you couldn't outrun it uh no i did get close but no um <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the uh, it wasn't the gear that was at fault there um but yeah so basically we um so shannon and i took two systems i guess two parallel systems we had the um olympus system and we had the fujifilm system so we were all mirrorless um, I brought with me the 25mm Pro lens, the 1.2. Uh, the 60mm, I had the amazing Noctocron on loan, which I brought with me. I candid had, clap, candid clap right I here. I had the 12-40 to 40 Pro and the 40-150 to 150 Pro. And all of that fit neatly into a, um, a little Tenba camera insert, which sat at the bottom of my backpack, and that was it. So my my kit was very like from the perspective of portability and not getting in my way, uh, two thumbs up. It was great, uh, no issues. I had only one body with me. Um, I had the uh, the EM1 Mark II, and uh, I one of the big takeaways from the trip is the relative durability of the two systems. But I'll get into that a right. little later. Um, on the Fujifilm side of things, there was the X-Pro2, the 16mm lens, the 35mm f2, and the monstrous 100-400 to 400, um, Man. telephoto <laughs> for reach. So we were... Well, you say we monstrous, know. but it's not really that big, is it? I mean, it's roughly comparable to what a 70-200 to 200 would be for a full-frame camera, something like that? It's comparable to the Canon uh, f2.8 
seventy right. to two hundreds. So it's big and heavy, but it's not unwieldy. Yeah, yeah. It's this is like mirrorless big. Yeah, if you will. Yeah, sure. Mirrorless big. Mirrorless That's big. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So um, that was my that was my kit. Um, I, I think one of the things that struck me um, is just comparatively speaking, what other people were using, because as a you know as a geek, my eye was also on the other folks in my tour and also just peeking into the other trucks that we encountered um, out in the plains, right? Seeing what other people were shooting with. And I have to say, I was very surprised. Um, so essentially... Wait, can we try to guess? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, guess. What yeah. do you think, Josh? Can- Canon D33 or 34 or 35 or 3600 or whatever they're at now. That's what I'd guess. <laughs> Or no, that's Nikon. Okay, oops. Um, yeah, so the Nikon version of the low-end DSLR. That's what I would guess. All right. The low-end DSLR. Ah, I, I don't think the low-end DSLRs are going to cut it there. Uh, but you said you were surprised. So the easy answer would be, you know, the 5Ds and and the Nikon D750s uh, of the world. But those would be the obvious choice. So if you say that you were surprised, it's got to be something else. Um, to be honest, I have no idea, but I'm going to say bridge cameras for everybody. Bridge like cameras for everybody. typical <laughs> bridge cameras with the super long zoom. I'm going to say that. All right. So um, <laughs> Josh is closer to the truth. So basically, you're, you're both right. Cheers though. to that. You're both right. So <laughs> there were there were a few bridge cameras, not many, but enough to you know have a healthy showing. Um, a good combination of uh, of Sony RX10 and um, Panasonic FZFS, whatever the hell theirs is, the equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they performed very well, by the way. If if you're listening and you're thinking of you know some simple piece of kit to take with you on a trip like that, a super zoom um, camera does really really well. So that was you know good call on their part. But what surprised me was that there was a stark and dramatic. Um, difference between amateur shooters and professional shooters and what they were using. So almost all of the casual shooters were using entry-level Nikon DSLRs. And right, the D3300 or something like that. But but even worse than that, like I was seeing D40s and D90s and things like old old entry-level Nikon right. DSLRs. And that was like I'm going to say the majority of um, people who had brought a camera that wasn't their phone. So there was a whole contingent of folk who just, you know, they had their phone and that was fine. But the folks who actually brought a dedicated camera, the vast majority of them, Nikon entry-level DSLR. And then every pro, Canon. All of them. All Canon. All right? Canon. Of course. All Canon and almost all 1D bodies. We had, um, wow. on our particular tour, there was a gentleman who, I'm going to say... He d- he claims not to have been professional, but I-, I think based on his images, he he may as well be. He was very very good. He was shooting a 7D Mark II with the uh, Sigma. Oh gosh, I think 150 to 600 or whatever the sport one is. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's it. That's nice. it. Nice. Yeah. Uh, he was getting amazing, amazing shots with that uh, with that combo. Um, but looking into other trucks, we saw some National Geographic trucks. We saw some trucks with um, different groups that were clearly there for stock imagery or things like that. It was all white lenses and big 1D bodies. Right. Um, and I I don't like I was expecting to see some D500s, you know, um, or some 
some D3s or D4s or D5s, like some of the big high-end Nikon stuff, but for whatever reason, um, I didn't spot any of it. It was all Canon on the high-end and all Nikon entry-level on the low-end, so weird. I guess that kind of shows why Nikon's been struggling lately. I suppose so. Like, I always felt like it was a more balanced thing, um, at least, you know, around here, but out there, no, not at all. Um, wow. So that was a surprising thing. I also, um, the mirrorless side of things was decently well represented. Um, we didn't have any other Fuji shooters, didn't have any other Olympus shooters, but um, there was a lady shooting an A7R first generation. Um uh-huh. Smart Not way. enjoying it very much, um, but oh. she, she <laughs> that backfired. Um, but it was, I, I think it was because she wasn't used to it. Uh, I got the sense that she had bought it for this trip, and that's not, you know, it's not really an easy right. camera. That's to, not something you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, you never want to go to an important trip with a new camera. Yeah, exactly. That you don't know how to operate. Exactly. Yeah, that you're not familiar with, I should say. Yeah. Um, but that was that was kind of the breakdown of of what people were using. Um, and uh, it was it was interesting to to see that again. I was surprised by the the starkness of that difference between the two DSLR camps. Um, but it is what it yeah. is. Yeah, I mean, I would have expected Nikon to have a bigger showing for sure. Me too. Uh, I yeah, mean, that, it's surprising. better tech, but I guess <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they don't have the red rings, man. The That's red true. rings. It's true. So, so tell us a little bit more about what, like what you use and uh, what, you know, you had just said today that you uh, got through all of your, did you get already get through all of your photography? Right. So I, I had the, um, the 40 to 150 with the 1.4 times uh, teleconverter basically glued to the camera for Ooh, cool. the majority of it. I would say like it, certainly for the wildlife stuff, that was, that was my, my main um, tool and it performed flawlessly it was it was really 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 admirable uh, my hat is off to olympus um the strides that they've made in the focusing system and the uh low light acquisition and uh, the stabilization is you know goes without saying but i was 100% satisfied with that setup for shooting my only my only um complaint was that i didn't have the 300 prime with me because there were right. often situations where I would have wanted the extra reach. Um, so I would have liked to have that option, but, uh, you know, I, does that I made teleconverter that. work with the 300 millimeter? It does. Yeah. Oh. oh, wow. So you can get to like 800 millimeters then, right? Yep. Wow. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Handheld. <laughs> Handheld. <laughs> so that That's would have incredible. been fun, but no, I, I, I just had the, uh, the 40 to 150 as, as you know, my, my limit. Um, but honestly that proved, um, like, that was enough reach for the vast majority of situations because we were able to get um, closer to the animals than I expected. And there was, we were um, remarkably lucky in terms of seeing wildlife. Um, I mean, we, we were fairly deliberate in planning our trip during the great migration season, but um, we, you know, we saw the big five uh, twice over, you know, once each week, um, the elusive leopard that some people don't get to see at all. We saw three of, um, the, the big, the big five say that again, I, you're going to have to educate me. So the big five is this term that's used to, uh, designate the, the sort of five animals that you must see if you go to East Africa or to South Africa, ah. like on safari, basically. So you've got, you know, lion, leopard, elephant, um, rhino and Cape Buffalo. Um, Oh, 
So, oh man, those five you've got to see. Um, and we did. And in fact, in in the rhino camp, there are two um, general species. There's a white rhino and the black rhino. The white rhino is more common; it's more sociable. The black rhino is very endangered, very aggressive, and almost never spotted. We saw one. Um, so again, it was we were just <laughs> nice. unbelievably lucky on on the animal front. We could not possibly have been more fortunate. I was um, I was thrilled, as you can imagine. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> it was. <laughs> but this this makes it even more surprising that you managed to come back in one piece. Exactly, I'm sur- I'm even more surprised. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, <laughs> yes, I did manage to come back in one piece. I had some close encounters, but they were generally with sweet animals. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of an animal called the rock hyrax. Um, no. Imagine something that looks like a guinea pig, but is um, about the size of a cat. Well, maybe not quite the size of a cat. It's it's larger than a guinea pig, though. It's not a rodent, but it looks like one. It's related to the elephant, and it's this adorable, very sociable. Related to the elephant, but looks like a rodent. It's it's <laughs> it's very bizarre. It's very. It has these little toenails. It's it's strange, but yes, it is related to the elephant. It is a an adorable critter that lives Going in big social groups. Um, and uh, I managed to first of all poke one in the nose, or more accurately, it poked me. And then I pet one because it was napping and I was patient. Um, so that was <laughs> that was good. And I didn't get eaten by anything or bitten by anything dangerous. Um, so that was, you know. Were there mosquitoes? Uh, a lot fewer than there are here uh, back home. So that was that was easy. I think if you've if you've been wow. to northern Ontario and and survived that, then uh, East Africa is. No problem as oh, far as mosquitoes. Walk in the park, right? Yeah, no <laughs> problem. <laughs> Except that they carry malaria. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a little disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys were vaccinated, right? Uh, well, no no vaccine for malaria, but we, we were on the um, the uh, pills that help sort of reduce your oh, chances right. of, of yeah. catching it. Um, so right. we were fine. Uh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so jump into that Olympus versus Fuji thing. Right. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, uh, how did you feel your 40 to 150 plus the teleconverter? How did you feel that compared to the Fuji 100 to 400 lens? Well, the, the 100 to 400 gives you more effective reach in terms of raw field of view. Um, and you also get um, the advantage of, of uh, shallower depth of field. Um, but at the same time, it's that a lot of that... Like when you're in extreme telephoto range, I find that the the shallow depth of field thing is is a bit deceptive because a lot of it has to do with your composition and um, yeah, very often your depth of field is way too shallow, wide open anyway. So you've got to stop down. Um, one thing I will say the the I mean, gun to my head, I honestly don't know which lens I would pick as the sharper of the two of them. The 100 to 400 was astounding. Um, it is an exceptionally sharp lens. Um, the stabilization is actually really effective. Um, it is awkward as hell to handle on the X pro (laughs) two, but it is functional. Um, and it is a lot lighter actually than you would anticipate. Like I've got some, some goofy looking photos of Shannon, um, wielding it and it, it looks disproportionate, but it's actually like, she was fine. We were, each of us was carrying this camera, you know, our, me, the Olympus for the most part and her, the, the Fuji for, you know, hours each day and it was it was fine so both of them are are very effective but um yeah like i it's hard to say this was this was my first encounter with the 100 to 400 and i came away very impressed i'm very tempted to pick one up because 
while it is expensive, it is um, it's worth the money. Um, wow. But what I found and what I did not expect to find, but um, the respective weather sealing of the two cameras um, was was not the same. And, and the way that they behave in extreme conditions is not the same. Um, so the X-Pro2 is, you know, weather sealed, it's dust sealed and everything like that. And if you know, um, if you've heard about East Africa, one of the things that people tend to warn you about is that there's a lot of fine grain dust in the air, on the roads, it gets everywhere. Um, this is true. I am still cleaning it out of all sorts of uh, pockets and, and crevices and um, the it's it's extremely pervasive and the dust itself is not really that problematic except trying to keep the lens elements clean and minimizing um, minimizing lens swaps obviously because you know there's so much dust in the air um, but what was troublesome on the X Pro 2 was a battery life and b the fact that I think the heat was doing bad things to it so for the first time in my entire experience with an X-Pro2 across several different units, um, I was getting card errors. Wow. Um, which was really scary, right? Because, you know, you think, okay, is the card dead? Do we? And you've got a swap in the middle of a game drive. So it's that was kind of uncomfortable. Um, I don't know exactly why it happened. I, I think it's got to do with temperature. Um, and the battery life was really quite bad. Um, that was one of the areas where um, I would have liked to have a DSLR with me because on the X-Pro2, we were easily going through both batteries in a morning game drive or something like that. And and wow. the fact that the truck wow, had that's a, a lot. Um, yeah, like a morning, evening game drive, like we, we had to be constantly charging one battery using the other one. Um, and again, thankfully, the, the vehicle had a, um, we were able to charge things in the car rather than having to wait to get back to some sort of civilization. So that was great. Um, and on the flip side, the Olympus performed without any sort of issues um, for the entire time, and the battery lasted the entire day easily. So that's a practical example of you know why myself and so many other Fujifilm photographers have been begging them to like just use a bigger battery, make us buy new batteries. We're willing to do it because this is the kind of situation where shitty battery life doesn't cut it, right? Like you don't, yeah. you don't want to be swapping batteries. We were lucky that we could recharge them, but otherwise we would have had to have an entirely separate bag full of batteries just to make it through. Um, like it, it's, it's not practical with this battery life level. So uh, between the two of them, I would say that if I were to go back on a trip like that, I would 100% take the Olympus over the Fujifilm just because of those things. First of all, I'm not quite sure why, but not super reliable in hot conditions on the X-Pro2 side and the battery life is just frustrating. Um, All right, so I have I have a couple questions yeah. there. Um, first about the battery life. Did you switch the screen off? Because with the X-Pro2, you can just use the OVF and you got to think that should give it an extra boost to the battery. Yeah, right? it was EVF only shooting. Uh, EVF, EVF only, only. Yeah, with some... Uh, but not OVF. Not right? OVF. No, not OVF. Right. I mean, with the 100 to 400, OVF shooting is a little... No, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a little crazy. It. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so EVF only. The back screen was off most of the time. Um, I believe Shannon was uh, taking a look at the photos um, every now and then and, and showing people and stuff like that. But not. it wasn't really a huge... Meaningful. Yeah, right. like I don't know how much of an impact that would have had. Um so all right 
I, I would say like normal usage, not extremely cautious usage, um, but like normal usage of the camera. And it was in high performance mode, which impacts battery life. But again, that's the kind of situation where you want where the maximum. Where you just need it. Yeah. Right. So it's, sure. uh, there is a trade-off and it, it's just that, um, yeah, like I, I, I wish they had a bigger battery. I wish that they had, you know, I think that ideally for that kind of shooting, I would have brought an X-T2 with the battery grip and that probably would have been fine. Um, right. But individually, like just with the one battery, it's it's not enough. Okay. And the other question is, uh, did you, do, do you think the battery life was worse over there than it's back at home? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. And that's... Okay. So it's it's something to do with the conditions then. It's yeah. Not, that's that's why... Well, I, if it's the heat or, or what it is, but... Absolutely. Because right. I can get much better battery life out of the X-Pro2 here um, in, in Canadian conditions than I can um, out there. But on the other hand, I can do the same with the Olympus as well. Like that also lasts a lot longer. So um, it it scales proportionally. So even though the Olympus battery took a hit as well over there, it's just that much bigger. Like there's, there's enough extra capacity right. that it was still okay. That's interesting. Because usually you get worse battery life in cold conditions. I know. But right. I wasn't aware that the heat was also problematic. I honestly didn't think it was either, but apparently it was. Um, or Maybe again, it's the humidity? Or, I, don't I mean, know. there was none. Basically, it's bone dry for most of the regions that we were in. Um, okay. <laughs> other than when we were on a lake looking for hippos, but that was a different <laughs> harrowing story. <laughs> different experience, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's surprising. I mean, I expected the EM1 Mark II to perform better. It just feels like a camera that's built for that sort of uh, situation. Um, so that's not surprising. But I am surprised to see to hear that the Fuji was a bit of a, a bit of a letdown in that regard. Yeah, and uh, again, those are like, two they... very important aspects. It's not just uh, it's not just annoying, but you can put up with it. But if your battery dies in a couple hours and your memory card fails, those are some very serious issues. It's not just something that you can brush aside. Yeah, exactly. And and again, I, I do want to just like, you know, uh, if if in an ideal scenario, I would probably go back with an X-T2 with a battery grip and I suspect that I would be fine. Like that would, that would have been right. the more appropriate um, body for this kind of shooting. But I don't yeah, own I an X-T2, I own an X-Pro2. And ostensibly, they are the same in terms of weather sealing and in terms of uh, certainly battery life and all that kind of thing. It's the same processor, same everything. So theoretically, there shouldn't have been a, a big difference. But um, right. for whatever reason, I did encounter that problem. Um, on the other hand, I know that other people have, have gone into difficult conditions and, and not encountered stuff. So it, it may just be this particular unit getting tired, but I... Again, because it hasn't behaved that way and I've never had card issues, never had anything like that happen before, I suspect that it it has to do with the environment um, and it's just disappointing. Okay, so let's talk about something a bit more exciting. All right. Uh, what would you say was your, uh, your favorite or your most uh, memorable photographic experience out of the whole trip? Photographic experience. Oh, boy. Um, like the, your favorite moment? Or... Yeah, there was a moment actually toward the end. Um, we were in um, we were in Tanzania and we were sort of working our way back towards Kenya and we passed out of the east end of uh, the Serengeti into a place called uh, the Ngorongoro Crater, which is um, it's it's like a big volcanic caldera that is full of wildlife. Um 
it's it's gigantic like you you sort of you climb a mountain and then you have to take a four by four down into the crater and it's this whole environment um and we were down there and on our way back uh when we uh we encountered a um a male and female lion that were sitting on a stone um right beside the road so they were kind of at eye level as we stopped beside them and um our windows were down because of course we'd been you know leaning out to take pictures and everything and uh the the gentleman decided to stand up and come take a look inside the window uh at all the delicious little stick figures that were eyeing him (laughs) and i have to tell you that was um i i got some photos um but just staring into the eyes of a lion makes you feel like prey in a very <laughs> in a very visceral way like it's it's bizarre being there in the moment and and just having that experience it's like you you understand why they are feared and respected and everything like that because i have to say for the for the most part like Otherwise, photographing them is boring. Like, lions are really dull. They are lazy. <laughs> they are That's just true. sleepy cats. They're big, but they're That's just true. sleepy cats. So that was, you know, they're, they're not all that exciting. But when you get up close and you really have that sort of one-to-one uh, gaze, it's uh, it's an impressive experience. So being able to be that close and take those shots and then sort of shrink back into the car <laughs> and try to look <laughs> untasty. Um, that was, uh, that was pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, I mean, we had a picnic on the, on the bank of a river that was full of crocodiles and we were watching a big pot of, uh, of, of hippo just sort of discussing the day's events, I guess that, you know, they, they make all these funny noises <laughs> and being so close again to such a dangerous animal. Um, but they're, they're goofy. Like it's hard to take hippos seriously. Like, you know, intellectually that they're very scary, Yeah. but they look like these giant slugs that just walk around and grunt and make like weird cow noises. Um, so it's hard to be like afraid of them, but then one of them will open its mouth and it's like this, this Pac-Man style, 180 degree opening. And you're like, Oh crap, that's, that's, uh, that's my whole body. Yeah. Yeah, that's big. (laughs) And the, you know, the teeth are like knives and and they're they're huge and cur- so it's like it, it's an interesting experience you know i'm sitting there munching a peanut butter and jam sandwich and watching a hippo yawn in the river and it's like okay this is uh i'm not going to do this too many times in my life <laughs> yeah very cool definitely very cool. definitely be honest though when when the lion was up close with the next to the car were you thinking of the velociraptor scene of jurassic park oh 100 percent hundred percent opening the door yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, totally. Uh, and and I was expecting the little, you know, claw tapping and uh, would have been nice. So my turn to ask a question. What what was the um, biggest? Uh, I, I'll be the, the cynical guy. What was the biggest like regret? Let's say the, the thing that you wished you had had on you so that you could have taken that photo or you know what I mean? Yeah, photographically, photographically, actually, my, my biggest regret was just that I didn't. Um, I don't even know if it's a regret really. So, I mean, there's like a, a tangible one. And like I, I mentioned, I, I wish I had the 300 prime with me. That would have oh, been right, nice. Right, right, Um, But I honestly, right. like big picture, I don't think I missed anything meaningful. Like I don't think my my output from the trip would have been like transformed had I had that lens. I, I think I did fine without it, but it would have been nice to have. Um, sure. But actually one of the things that I, uh, I don't necessarily regret, but it's it's something that I struggled with uh, is 
how difficult it is to photograph. Um, and this is something that I actually, I was feeling quite down about um, my shots partway through the trip because I found it extremely difficult to, um, especially for the cultural stuff, um, like I don't, I don't really know how to take photographs of an impoverished country. I don't know how to right. handle those situations um, respectfully. I'm not really, you know, for someone who doesn't have that much experience doing street photography in general, trying to transpose that skill set into an entirely new um, environment and and like try and capture for my understanding and for other people's understanding the um, the alienness of it is. Uh, it was really hard and I was finding myself struggling a lot with it and, and feeling like the photos that I was taking were not um, evocative in the way that I wanted them to be. Um, and I, honestly, I don't know that there's anything I could have brought or done that would have changed that. I think that it's one of those things that um, this was this was my first trip to the region and now I understand it in a way that I couldn't have through research. Um, so the second time around, I'll know what to expect and I'll, I'll know what kind of thing to prepare for. I might have a better sense of how to capture it based on what I struggled with this time around. Um, but that was kind of an entirely unexpected um, photographic element of, of the trip. It, it was an aspect that I wasn't prepared for, just just how difficult it is. Um, and even something like the wildlife shooting, um, you know, the, the difference between being in the field and being in control of everything to being in a vehicle and doing shots on the move. And like, it's, it's really different and very difficult um, to, to get um, to have the compositional freedom that I might've wanted to have. Right. Like it's, cause it's a, it's a whole new constraint being unable to really move around, to reframe the shot, to do whatever. Cause you're not on foot, thankfully in the Serengeti because that's dangerous. Um, but I would have wanted to be right. Like that's, that's how I would have gotten, the shots. So yeah, it's just working within <laughs> the, sets and of the constraints. shots would have gotten you too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the shots would have gotten me. Too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but that was, that was a struggle. Yeah. Just, just, um, constraints that I didn't expect and then trying to work around them in the moment. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense, but until you're there on the ground, it's, it's something that you can't plan for really. Yeah. Yeah, and I, honestly, I just learned to sort of let it go. I mean, that's uh, it was the same as as that realization that I mentioned earlier about not, you know, it's not my job to like discover this country for people. Like, there's other photographers sure. that have been through here and, and have captured everything. So it's more about my experience of it, and and that made it easier. And uh, you know, there was a lot of shots where I didn't know how to take it, so I didn't, um, you know, or or I took it and I tried and it didn't work, and that's fine too. You know, like it, it was. Yeah, that's fair. It, you know, th so that was. Uh, once I got over that, once I sort of had that thought process go through my head, it was fine. But uh, it was just a bit of a, a stumbling block along the way. Wow. Got bigger guts than I have, man. Don't think I could do it. <laughs> I think I'm you could. I'm scared of going to Western Europe these days. <laughs> no, you know what? I think you could. Like, it's honestly, I'm, I'm really glad that we went. And actually, there was some, um, I'm not going to say political unrest because it's not really unrest, but there was a... Um, there was some upset around the results of an election um, in Kenya and a lot of people had canceled their trip or postponed it or whatever because of that. And I thought, um, like, I was really glad that we didn't because uh, just talking to the locals and experiencing it um, there, like, it was very clear that that had nothing to do with us, that we were not in any danger. It was not related right. to us. Um, and even culturally, like, they don't do protests the way that we see on the news in 
the states and stuff like that. Like that's, it's just not the way that they do things. So yes, there was um, a lot of unhappiness around the results or a lot of conflict or a lot of whatever, but it, it doesn't manifest in a way that would make anyone unsafe in, you know, it's just, so, you know, yes, it's, you know, it's always risky to go to, um, a country that is so vastly different and has such a different um, set of cultural standards and and everything like that and and of course the level of poverty is is striking and uh, but I you know I'm I'm glad that we went I wouldn't let I wouldn't let something like that stop me certainly from from traveling to a place like this because the the reward is so much greater than the risk absolutely absolutely would you say the place is overcrowded with tourists or were you, for the most part, on your own? Uh, it depended a lot on where we were. So I would say that Nairobi has a fairly healthy population of uh, not necessarily tourists, but expats that are either there for business or for, uh, you know, temporary work. Like there there were more foreigners around. But uh, once we started going deeper into the bush, it was less so. Um, I would say that in the, in the big game parks of so the Maasai Mara and the Serengeti, of course, uh, plenty of tourists because that's, you know, Basically, anyone who's in there is a tourist. Um, uh, but the, um, for instance, in the first half of the trip, we we actually spent a night with the um, with the Maasai tribe in one of their villages, and that was something that um, only this particular tour group that we went with, only this company is allowed to do um, for this village. So we were. Uh, you know, we felt fairly privileged to be welcomed by them and and to be able to sit down and and hear their stories we we were sitting around the campfire um and they were telling us sort of their their oral history and then um we also had beer with oh, them wow. that was later on but yes. <laughs> but um now we're talking but it now was we're talking. Now, know, now i know i can go to africa that was not a really it didn't feel like a very touristy thing you know like it it, it felt like something that relatively few people get to experience with them and that was that was really nice like i i appreciated that um but yeah, I, I can't say that there was anywhere that we went that felt like flooded by tourists. Um, okay. So that was good. And did you see some areas that felt opposite? Like like you are the first uh, Western <laughs> people to be there? <laughs> um, not the first, but I, I would say that uh, certainly in the wilder parts of Tanzania, we were greeted with a lot more suspicion and um, right. wariness than in other places. And that may have just been a cultural thing, uh, you know, Tanzania versus Kenya, because in general, I would say that uh, in Kenya, everybody was was incredibly enthusiastic and friendly and um, glad to see us. And uh, there was no begging. You know, that was a surprise. Um, just just wonderful, wonderful people. Tanzania, there was more of a of a distance. They were a little chillier, a little um, a little less comfortable. I would say. Right. Um, and so as a result, yeah, we, we did feel a little more alien there, but there was nowhere that we, that we went where it was like, I am the first white person you have ever seen. Behold. Mm -hmm. um, so no, I, I think that we avoided that. We weren't that far out. All right. So if you had to encapsulate the whole experience for someone who is maybe thinking of going and, and doing something like that, what would you say to them? I'd say it's an important trip. I'd say it's one that you should do. And it's not necessary that it be East Africa, but, you know, experiencing some part of of uh, non-developed Africa, I think, is is important because it's it's so 
it's so unlike what we're used to. And I think that we get really caught up in this idea that the way that we live and the, the Western lifestyle is the only one that works. Um, and right. seeing people who are in conditions that we would consider, um, you know, barely um, tolerable thriving is uh, is important. Like it, it's just it resets your perspective in a way that I think is is very uh, useful, especially in this day and age when it's so easy to get caught in a bubble. Um, doing a trip like this that will really burst any such bubbles uh, is is a good thing. And for me, you know, even something stupid like finally, but you know, like I'm a straight white guy, and I was suddenly a minority and and really felt it. You know, like that was that was important too. Another you know, broadened perspective. Um, it, like it, it's, it's the kind of trip that, that I think is important to go on. Um, whether or not you are like into the animal side of things, because, you know, for me it was, we, we focused a lot on the safaris and, and things like that, but there's so much to do that, that doesn't touch on those aspects if you're not into it. Um, so yeah. Well, there you go. Marius went on a safarius. Yes. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> I wish I was cool enough to come up with that, but anyway, it's a cool name. Uh, I, uh, episode <laughs> title. Episode title. Episode title right there. <laughs>